0: The Lord is risen today
1: church welcome to worship a song of ascents by David how good and pleasant it is when God's people live together in unity it is like precious oil poured on the head running down on the beard running down on Aaron's beard down on the collar of his robe it is as the dew of Hermon were falling on Mount Zion for there Yahweh bestows his blessing, even life forevermore. Let's pray. O God, whose Son, Jesus, is the Good Shepherd of your people, grant that when we hear his voice, we may know him who calls us by name and follow where he leads, who with you and the Holy Spirit lives and reigns, one God forever and ever. Amen.
2: We are
0: The ho
2: In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. The word of the Lord.
0: Before my closing eyes, shine through the
3: those of you at home and for those of you on the worship team. This morning's reading is from the Gospel of Matthew. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do the people say the Son of Man is? They replied, say some, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others still Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked? Who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this is not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosened in heaven. Then he ordered the disciples to not tell anyone that he was the Messiah. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. How good and pleasant it is for God's people to live together in unity. This Sunday, we start a series going through and using as a framework to sort of talk about <laughs> our life together through Giedrich Bonhoeffer's book, Life Together. Now, many of you who were here about two and a half years ago, we read this as a defiance school of defiance reads, um, and we walked through it then. But now we're sort of using it as a structure to sort of say, what is it like our common life together? One of the things I like to remind people of, and if you read the email this week, I did this at the front end of the email, is that, um, is that we have our own sort of lectionary at Defiance Church in and that, in that starts in Advent. And that's where the church year, I think, properly starts for us. And we put ourselves in this place of anticipation of the Christ who comes to Israel and anticipation as the church of the Christ who comes to re- reconcile and redeem all things. So we look both forward and backwards in the time of Advent. And then we traditionally do a short Christmas season. And then around the first or second Sunday of the year, we move into a gospel and walk with one gospel and tell the story of Jesus through that gospel all the way till Easter. And we do it in two halves, sort of one half, in which we look at the miraculous work that Christ does, how he is life among us, how he heals and binds sickness, how he is this one who's um, God's yes to humanity. And yet... We read the other portion of the gospel in the time we call Lent, in this time of which Christ begins to say what his cost is, that he is going to get crucified, that he is going to get died, and how we say no to God in that. That's sort of the challenge of what goes on in that next season. After Easter, which is the time we enter now, we first continue with the Easter proclamation that, that he's not risen, he's, he's not here, he is risen. Um, or uh, hallelujah, Christ is risen, the four of you here, Christ is risen indeed. If we try to hold out that celebration for this time, that if we can, if we can um, fast for 40 days, how much greater should we celebrate for 50 days when Christ is raised from the dead? That, that God's yes to us, that God's reconciliation of creation, that God's revealing goes deeper than the no. And so we stretch out that time longer. So part of what we do during this season is we sort of take a series that sort of equips and talks about what it means to be the church. In the past, we did the seven practices, which came out of a book by David Fitch that we gave away. Um, we've done, uh, let me think, in the past, uh, I have this written down somewhere. I thought I'd just remember when I got up here. Um, we did the book of Acts as a story of the upside-down kingdom, my first year, um, we sort of move through these different things that sort of help us equip to be the church in the world. And then we go to the summer, which this is our last summer. Uh, we'll go through the book of Deuteronomy, but we try to do a longer series to stretch throughout the summer. And then the fall, we do another series that, that often is both a walk through the Bible, but also more equipping. So something like the book of Ephesians or the Lord's Prayer. This fall, we'll go through the Sermon on the Mount um, that we do something to sort of kick off the fall together again when we're not traveling as much and sort of walk together until Advent again. That's sort of how time cycles here at Defiance Church, and you can tell where we are by sort of what we're doing at various times. And so this, this Sunday starts one of those seasons where we're sort of walking through an equipping thing for us. We're walking through what does it mean to be the church. What does it look like for us to be the church? So this morning's psalm began with the reading, How Good and Pleasant It Is When God's People Live Together in Unity. This is both the opening of the first chapter of Life Together on Community and the ending of that chapter. Bonhoeffer wants to call our minds to what does it mean to live life together, a phrase he uses several times, under the word. And for Bonhoeffer, under the word is God's word to us in Jesus Christ. It's not just under the Bible, but it's under God's word spoken to us in Jesus. What does it mean to live life together under the word? But first I want to talk about a concept that I've been thinking about for a while with varying degrees of familiarity with it, and I hope I can express it well, which is this notion of anti-fragile. So uh, this comes from a book like by Nicholas Talib. Um, And he's writing for organizations, investments, and all these other things. Um, And he he wants to coin this phrase, anti-fragile, that describes a large portion of reality that we're missing. And he often asks people, okay, so you're shipping some nice champagne glasses to your brother-in-law in Moscow. And you go to the post office and you put them in a box. And what do you write on the box? You write that it's fragile. But what would be the opposite of that? Well, people often say, well, if I put, um, Brian and Carla were nice enough to lend me some weights. If I put one of those weights in that box and chipped it and, and sent it off, um, and I could put please mishandle on it, toss around, you don't have to worry about this box, um, do with as you will, just get it there, nothing would break, right? Don't drop it on your foot. On your foot. But what actually, the weight is, is resistant." It's not anti-fragile. What what Tlaib wants to call anti-fragile is those things that grow, that become stronger when they're shaken and damaged. So many of the things in our world that we think are are permanent are not actually anti-fragile, but they're just robust, resilient, strong. That way, nothing is going to happen to but what he considers anti-fragile are the things which actually that can grow and sustain and become stronger through disorder and chaos and, and shaken times. One example of that he uses is, is, is you can invest in a way that's anti-fragile. This is, if you've seen the movie The Big Short, which I, I have enjoyed, um, they, some people invested in a way around the housing market that when disorder came, they didn't just survive. Their investments tripled and quadrupled. You can invest in ways in which disorder leads you to thrive. One of his favorite examples, which he comes back to over and over again, is actually our bodies. There's research around fasting that says when we do fasting, it actually increases our ability to sort of live longer because it creates in us the proper need for food. Another one is, is going back to the weights analogy with proper resistance and stress on our bodies, they actually become stronger. Our bodies can be anti-fragile in ways that they thrive in this way. He's big into mist. The mist that he has for, for fragile is um, this one where the king sits with a, a knife hanging over his head by a, stri- a horse's tail, which eventually breaks, which is to say you can have all the power, but the knife at some point, it's going to break, and that's a fragile place. The second myth he likes for, for things that are robust is phoenix. The phoenix rises and is in a chaos destroyed, but then it rises again in its exact same state. I think this, this is the mistake that Christians make when they think of the resurrection as a recitation, that Jesus dies and then he comes back in the exact same way, and yet he comes back as one who holds the, the keys to Hades and, and life and death. And the one he likes for anti-fragile, which is not my favorite way to say this, but may help you guys grasp this, is, is the hydra. That the hydra, when it loses its head, it grows two in its place. Now why did I spend so long talking <laughs> about this notion of being anti-fragile that we ended up with the hydra? I think what we know about the church is that the church can exist as an anti-fragile institution. What Jesus says to Peter after his confession of faith about who Jesus is, is that the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. Church history, and my church history professor, who was a kind, um, mainline, Presbyterian man who ran a church that was nice for everyone, raised the question that, you know, this is the way I do things. And he was very wise, he said, but the church seems to do its best when either it tightens the bonds of community and makes it a stronger thing, and that seems to be multiply its witness out to the world, or to when it exists under persecution, which we are not to pray for, but it seemed to brought the church to vitality in different ways during those times. Tertullian, writing in the second century, says that... that, um, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. That to go and to experience pressures and challenges is actually what makes the church stronger. And so he asked us if the church exists in health better as a contrast society to the world, salt and light being both languages of contrast, in which people are bound together tightly, or if if if, if that's the case, what are we training ourselves for? Most of us are training to be nice, kind pastors who accept everyone and don't have such tight bonds. But it seems to be stronger if we don't do that. Essentially what he was saying is for the church to be an anti-fragile thing, it needs to be committed to the path it's on. Another way this shows up for us in the scriptures, which was one of the most deeply meaningful sermons that I gave here, was a series on Matthew's parables. Everything that is, uh, could be. is, let's see if that fixes it. Um, th- the parables in Matthew 13 are all things that are small. Um, and they grow in ways in which they sort of take over. They become stronger things through that. The seed, the yeast, the mustard tree, all these things are tiny things, but through their interaction with the world can become stronger things. This brings us to life together, life together under the word. Now, it should be noted that Bonhoeffer's life in this community that he talks about in Life Together exhibits this sort of anti-fragile tendency in some ways. Bonhoeffer was called to start this community in 1935. And this is around the time that that Hitler is really gaining power in Germany before the war starts. Bonhoeffer's already been kicked off the radio for criticizing Hitler and told that he can't teach anymore for criticizing Hitler. And so the German church sort of calls him to start this underground seminary in 1935. It only lasts till 1937 when the Nazis come and shut that down as well. And so he tries this two-year experiment, is what he called it, and what it means, an intentional Christian sort of living and binding together in a visible way before the world. But in leading this illegal seminary, after it was shut down, it made him go back and write this book out at a rate which was, his friend says, exaggerated. He speedily put this book to paper. And one of the things that, um, that comes from that. Uh, from Bonhoeffer writing it fast is that this book that becomes a bestseller for many, many years. Uh, We still read it today. It's still widely available. You can get it in many used bookstores even. That's how widely it's been used and read. Not only that, his other book that he writes coming out of this time on the Sermon on the Mount, The Cost of Discipleship, is one of the Christian classics that people read over and over again today. And so Bonhoeffer um, in his own life, exhibited this. And as many of you know, Bonhoeffer dies himself by hanging by Nazis April 9, 1945, in a concentration camp just days before it is liberated. And what he says to the people there, his friends, is that this is the end, but for me, it is the beginning of life. That on the day Bonhoeffer is to be hung, this is the end, but for me, is the beginning of life. Bonhoeffer, in going to the grave, has had his witness multiplied in a way that's anti-fragile by going to these places. And so this two-year experiment lives on in different ways. But what does this mean for us? How is this going to be a structure for us to consider our lives? Bonhoeffer's first chapter on community talks about what it is like to be the church as this visible community before the world. That the disciples are gathered together in sort of this way to be a visible witness before the creation and before the world of what God intends to do in time. To live in the period between God's resurrection and and his return is to be a sign of great joy and great witness to the world and its visible commitment to one another. This is what he set out to do. Bonhoeffer has this notion of thinking about the church as if it is surrounded by enemies. He talks about the church in the world as if it is made up of, almost, and surrounded by that which is not brought into it. And he points out this in the beginning of the book, is that if that weren't the case, then how did you get saved by Jesus Christ who lived among the world surrounded by it as well? The church that Bonhoeffer is talking about here, which is what he really talks about in the book, not a monastic community or a seminary, is to be a life in the world that is surrounded by things that don't associate with it, don't like it, we would rather see distinguished, but that is actually how we know to exist because of Jesus Christ who lived that way as well before us. And he says how could you know you're saved without Christ doing that because you too existed in that state, dead unto sin or enemies of God as Paul has said and brought into new life. That the church exists in this way is a good thing for it. We are supposed to be surrounded in this way because that way we can live our witness of life to the world. This is his first principle of sort of doing this, is to knock the idea of purity off in this movement, but to say that we live in this way for the importance of a witness to the world. But Bonhoeffer then considers three things that he thinks are good about this and offers a warning. Bonhoeffer probably being a better pastor than I am, starts with the three good news things and ends with the bad news thing. But I'll start with the bad news. And it's a, it's a phrase that I think I knew by memory before I even read this book. I don't know where I picked it up. But the warning that he gives is those who love their ideal dream of a Christian community more than the Christian community they have themselves become destroyers of it. One of the challenges of, of leading a church one of the challenges of being part of a church, one of the challenges of having a vision or a goal or a life for your church is those things can quickly become things you love more than the church that you have gathered around itself. You can love the ideal. You can love the picturesque. You can love how everybody would get together, how all your friends would be there, how it would be a place of hiking or, or social justice or of the music you like or of... Um, uh the the speaker you like sorry um or of or of all these things uh that only did the things you like and what you do when you begin to raise that up too high he's not telling you to have dreams is you begin to spite the people who don't share that with you who are gathered around jesus in your midst if only they knew if only they could go along with me if only they'd quit complaining And then you begin to dehumanize them and you become a lover of your idea of what this Christian community could be, whichever Christian community it is, more than loving the community itself. Bonhoeffer wants people to love the community first itself more than their vision or ideal for what the community should be. I think this is a challenge for pastors, but it's also a challenge for congregants challenge for all of us, to not look at this place, our church, or any church, and begin to say, you know, it would be better if it were like this or like that or this or that, not to say that we shouldn't have dreams, but then to use that to say this person doesn't get it. And the second that you minimize somebody else's worth in the community that you're already in, you've lost the battle of preserving your Christian community, the actual one. I mean, everybody in the world goes to the church I design in my mind, but in real life, nobody goes there. And what you have to do is find a way to live with the people who are you're surrounded by in a way that draws out love for one another. This is the warning that he takes up most of the last half of this first chapter of the book. And I think it's a wise warning for us, especially in this day and age where we can go to, to a charismatic church that meets our need or a purpose-driven church that meets our need or this type of church that meets our need. And inevitably, when we go to those places, we end up resenting them too because nothing lives up to our ideal. We should keep our ideals, but they should never become the way in which we harm the actual Christian community that's near us. Because in that way, you become the destroyer of the community that's near to you already. But Bonhoeffer then ponders the three things that make the church the church. It means, first, that a Christian needs others for the sake of Jesus Christ. It means, second, that a Christian comes to others only through Jesus Christ. It means, third, that from eternity we have been chosen in Jesus Christ, accepted in time and united for eternity. These things are what it means because Christian community only comes to to us through and in Jesus Christ. The next chapters will get a little bit smaller, but he wants to get right the major of Christian community, which is that this comes to us through Jesus Christ. The first one he talks about in this way that says that we as Christians know that we're nothing of ourselves in some ways. That the first step of becoming into this type of community that lives and through Jesus Christ is know that it's only on account of Jesus Christ that this community is here at all. It's only on account of Jesus Christ that I'm saved at all. Monhoeffer says in this part that, that if asked about how we know we're in this thing, we wouldn't refer to anything of ourselves. Now, Bonhoeffer's professor, Karl Barth, he had this great thing, and I, I think I've mentioned this before, is people, when he came to America, American evangelicals had a bit of a different way of thinking about things. They would ask him when he was saved. And Carl would normally answer, I don't know, around 33 A.D. Carl didn't want faith to be something that was within him, but that something that was done by God, through God, to him. It's not his own accomplishment. It's weird because I think the church oftentimes can get this one wrong. It's our own accomplishment that we've made it here. It's our own accomplishment that we're saved. What Bonhoeffer wants to get us clear to us before we even begin to move into Christian community is that we're here on the pount of a Jesus Christ. We're not here of anything within ourselves. Another thing that he, he, I think, hints around that he's getting from Martin Luther, but I think is prevalent today, is that I believe in my belief is sort of the way how it comes out for many people. I know I'm saved because I believe in what I believe. It's a mild form of works righteousness, right? You believe in your belief in believing in belief. It kind of becomes circular as well, um, when in fact that we believe in what Christ has done for humanity through becoming human, dying on the cross, and rising again to new life until he comes again. So Luther has this, this, this notion that, that if you are worried about what you believe or being attacked by Satan or what you've done wrong, just believe in your baptism again of what God has done for you. Don't try to build up any system that protects yourself or makes you think it's better because eventually it will come crashing down and the only thing that you can throw yourself back into over and over again is the everlasting mercy of God given to us in Jesus Christ. So for Defiance Church, first and foremost, what does it mean for our life together is that we're grounded in what God has done in Jesus Christ. How good is it for us to live in unity it's a unity that only comes to us through God, who's elected us in Jesus Christ and given us this path in life. It's interesting because it doesn't make us better than anyone else. It only makes us those who know what God has done in Jesus Christ, who have heard the news and responded to it. A phrase that I often use here, and it, and I think has a tendency to perhaps make me not a great preacher, but it is what it is, is that Christianity is news before it is advice. I know lots of people want advice, and our world is drenched in advice. But what the gospel is first is news of what God has done before the advice takes root in your life. There are things that are like advice that come out of being a Christian and living in a Christian community. But you want to get that order right first. Defiance Church is news of what God has done before it's about what we do at all. The second thing he says is that this community is only through Jesus Christ and that he is our peace, the reading that Brian read for us. God is making a people where there was no people. Christ has come and bound us together and it's only possible through him. This isn't something we achieve on our own either. It's not that we get saved and then we invent the church, but that Christ is the one who is our peace in a world of conflict and it's stable there. As much as the church can forget where our peace resides, it resides in us all liking each other resides in, in um, a fire circle with Kumbaya, um, it resides in this sort of thing, is that our peace and our commitment to one another f- resides in Christ. And it's only when we get that order right, first, that we are not saving ourselves, second, that we are only capable of doing this because Christ has put together the divisions that exist among us in his death. He's put them to death and enabled us to move into new life. Christ becomes our peace. God is making this possible only through him who is Jesus. This is more communal than the first rule. And so for us as a church, it's to know and go back to this point. That in a world of strife, in a world where um, uh, election season is coming, everybody's favorite season as I joke, um, in which we can see the ways in which we're being pulled apart both on the outside of the church and on the inside of the church, it's for us to come back to this notion that Christ has put to death those divisions and made peace among us. And I think there's there's this thing for us, as, as Defiance Church, to remember that that's the way it is begins to enable us to act like it. To remember that this is the way in which this is founded, then we move into practicing it. But the moralism of saying you practice it and make it doesn't work. You hear that God has made that here for the church. In Jesus we find our peace. And then we live our peace together knowing that that's where it's bound. The third thing he wants to name, is that this is a pure grace for us, that Christ is bound to us in time and lives with us in eternity. He bears flesh, Bonhoeffer says, he bears us. God has wedded himself to us in Jesus Christ. This is not something that we make all on our, it's, it's not something we save ourselves in the first one. It's not a community we make on our own. And it's only a community that we witness to because God has promised not to surrender us to our own folly. That God has bound himself to us in time and where we live now and then accepted us into eternity forever. And so going back to this, we sort of get how to act. This is where advice maybe can come in. He says that as Christ has bound himself and forgiven us, so, as we say every week, we can forgive others. It's the way in which Christ has bound himself to this human community in time and in eternity that we can begin to live out of this pure grace. And so the... the the church doesn't come back to a new law necessarily in the same ways that it is given a new grace to live into. One of the ways that I think we've misappropriated grace is that it becomes a garbage can. And so I am human and I sin and I throw uh, my sin into a garbage can and then God takes it away. That is true. Um, But grace is also what enables us to pray. It also enables us to forgive. It's the soil that allows us to grow into the fruits of the Spirit. Grace doesn't just take away our bad things, it enables our good things. If it only took away our bad things, then what would be our good things? My great works, obviously. Amen. No, they would be enabled by grace as well. And so it is God's undertaking as such to provide this community as a pure grace to us. So for us at Defiance Church, we see ourselves bound in this time to be a visible community and witness to the reconciling work of God through Jesus Christ. Or witnessing community towards the renewal of all things by the triune God. We have different ways of phrasing this. I haven't quite worked out my preferred one. But the point is, is that the church has, our church has within itself to become a community of people bound together not through any work of their own but through Jesus Christ knowing that they are saved. A community that exists through Jesus Christ who is our peace and makes a place for us in a community that is bound to him in time and for eternity. As he bears flesh, he is bearing us with him. So to go back to the beginning, perhaps the church, our church, can become anti-fragile in this way. By accepting in in our limitedness, which I think is part of what those three things are about, that God is the one who binds us and makes life possible here. And that in that, we know the survival isn't just up to us, but it is through God that survival is possible for us. And it is through losses and persecution and trials and becoming a community that's bound together tighter in prayer and fasting and feasting, of celebrating with one another, it is through God that it's not us for us to see how these things point out, but this thing grows in a way that goes beyond us. So much so that the gates of hell can't prevail against it. Let us pray. God, you have called your community to live in unity together. How good and pleasant it is for us. God, we invite you through this day and this series to bind us together, to become your community in the world, and to be visible in a way that exhibits great joy, and that we can see the gift in others, and that we can properly recognize your work for us. God, it is through the confession of faith that Peter says you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God, that your church is built, and the gates of hell or Hades will not overcome it. Let us turn to one another in love, support one another, and bind one another, because you have bound us in your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. our time of confession, in which we rest in the goodness of what God has done for us. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, God, who is faithful and just, will forgive us our sins and cleanse us in all on, from all unrighteousness. In humility and faith, let us confess our sin to God. Merciful God. We confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed by what we have done and by what we have left undone. We have not lovers, our whole heart, mind, and strength. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. In your mercy, forgive what we have been. Help us amend what we are and direct what we shall be so that we may lighten your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your holy Let us hear the good news of what is accomplished in Christ. Who is in a position to condemn? Only Christ. And Christ died for us. Christ rose for us. Christ reigns in power for us. Christ prays for us. Anyone who is in Christ is a new creation. The old life has gone, a new life has begun. Know that you are forgiven, and be at peace. Amen. So as we are doing during this season, let us confess the faith that has been handed on to us. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord Um, Perhaps we should remember to have Carla play an offertory in the future. But um, I just wanted to take this time to thank all of you who have given online and sent checks to the church and given in other ways. It's made an enormous difference for us during this time. And it's easy to forget that the church still goes on. I know for me, without seeing many of you, it's hard for me to remember sometimes. But those gifts help us stay alive and so that we can meet together when that time comes. Um, the second thing is we have other people offering gifts. Merle's done some work at the church by putting up a chalkboard for us. And Park has done some work by making the bathrooms retiled, which is a glorious gift as well. And so people are giving in offerings, both in time and in money, and we give thanks for all that. Now is our time of prayer. Which we offer up our concerns for the world. So let us pray together. Holy God, you have called us to follow in the way of your risen Son and to compare for those who are our companions, not only with words of comfort, but acts of love, seeking to be true friends of all. We offer our prayers on behalf of the church and the world. God, we pray for this community this morning. I'm aware of the oddness of preaching on a book, Life Together, when we are not together. But it's through this hope of building this structure, of taking the time to talk and think about this, that we can come back and be together in deeper ways. Oftentimes, it seems it's not for the church to become wider, but for it to become deeper. Be drawn into that life you have for the world. God, we pray for those struggling with sickness during this time. Sickness related to the virus, but sickness related to other things in which they are not able to get medical care or afraid to go in. We pray for those who are dealing with postponements in surgeries that are deemed elective but are sitting in pain and waiting. Pray for those who are bound in homes in which they can't receive visitors. That the light of being in that place has been taken away. And we pray for those who would be graduating mm-hmm. or getting married. Or missing funerals. May you soon bring an end to the time, this time, for us as your church, but also for people in the world who need you. God, we pray for families during this time. We pray for those trying to learn and teach online. We pray for the economy, not in the sense of Wall Street, but in the sense of jobs for people that give them life and meaning. For restaurants, people's life work that may be coming to an end. all these places where people have dumped their time and their energies that may be taken for them. We pray that they may be given the means to make it, if it is your will, but also the hope to see a new day. And God, we pray for those dealing with unemployment now as well. But in the midst of all this, we give thanks. We give thanks for the good weather we've been having. We give thanks that this church at least exists in an area where we can go outside and enjoy the beauty of your creation. We give thanks for the companionship we have on this journey, together as a church and with our families. We give thanks for your healing touch in some of our lives during this time. So we ask all this and close in prayer. Our Father, who is in heaven, hallowed be be your name. Your Your kingdom kingdom
0: come, your will will be done done on on earth Earth as as it is in heaven. Give us this day our our daily bread and and forgive us our sins as as we forgive those who sin sin against against us. Lead us not not into temptation
1: but deliver us from evil. evil. For yours is the the kingdom
0: and the power and the glory forever.
3: Amen.
2: Praise God from whom all blessings flow.
0: Praise him all creatures here below. Praise him above Praise Father,
3: Son, and Holy Ghost. Amen.